Now, uh, we are going to begin tonight another section. Uh, we, this is our, we're at two and a half years into Centerpoint School of Theology, and uh, we're working through um, a systematic theology. Uh, we've, reached, we've reached a topic, uh, ecclesiology. Uh, we're going to talk about the church uh, during, uh, during February, March, and April. And tonight I want to begin uh, with a fairly uh, generic uh, title, uh, I believe, in the church. Now, if you didn't pick up uh, an outline, uh, and the outline's a little shorter this evening. Uh, time got the better of me today, but... Uh, uh, the gist of what I want to say tonight is, is, is here, so make sure you've got um, an outline. And let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we, uh, as we bow in your presence, we thank you. Thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that... From before the foundation of the world, you set your affection upon us. Thank you that we've been drawn into a family, a family of God, a building that you are erecting, that we are part of a body in which Christ is the head. And we pray uh, during the next few weeks as we think together, on what uh, you have to say to us about the church and uh, the importance of the church and the nature of the church and the purpose of the church. We pray for your rich blessing and the outpouring of your spirit and mold and shape and conform us as a body to reflect more and more of that which you intend us to be and we ask it in Jesus name Amen now let's uh, let's begin um, I, I have a quotation here from the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed of uh, 381 uh, AD 381 uh, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church uh, and uh, that's a that's a Immensely significant and important statement. Uh, some of those ideas uh, come from one of the great church fathers who wrote a great deal about the church, uh, Cyprian. And uh, there are four marks of the church. The unity of the church, the holiness of the church, the universality of the church or, or Catholicity of the church, and the apostolicity of the church, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and of apostolic um, doctrine and truth. And we'll look at that statement and, and some more marks of the church later in the course uh, of our uh, semester uh, together. Now, uh, let's, uh, let's ask ourselves uh, a question. What does, what does church mean? And for that, I want to go to a passage, a passage that we looked at a few weeks ago at our congregational meeting, 
uh, in Matthew 16. So, um, if you if you have your Bibles, uh, go to Matthew 16. It's not essential. I'm going to tell you what's there. But Matthew 16, uh, beginning at verse 13, halfway through the 16th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi. Uh, it's a turning point uh, in the ministry of Jesus. We read in the text here that it is from this point onwards that Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And from Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, the journey heads inexorably to uh, Jericho and then eventually to, uh, to Jerusalem where he will be handed over to the scribes and Pharisees and be crucified and on the third day um, rise again. And it's in that context that Jesus asks the question, who do men uh, say that I am? Who do men say that I am? Uh, what's the buzz uh, about me? And there are all sorts of answers. Uh, some think that he is Jeremiah, others think that he's uh, Elijah, uh, some think that he's John the Baptist, returned from the dead. By this point, John the Baptist has been killed, uh, and uh, a, a, a belief uh, as, as apparently uh, drifted through the crowds that Jesus may well be uh, John the Baptist uh, returned from the dead. And then he says, but who do you, pointing to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And uh, it's Peter who says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, uh, uh, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven and uh, then, then he says to him uh, in verse uh, 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. You are Peter, and on this rock, and there's a play uh, between Peter and, and rock, Petras and Petra and so on. There's a, there's a, there's a, 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 a what's sometimes called a, a homophobe. There's a, the two words sound the same, Peter and, 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 and rock. And I think thereafter, Peter is always preoccupied with rocks and stones, as we shall see in a minute when we look at First Peter chapter 2. But it's this statement, I will build my church. And nobody says, church? What's church? Uh, like uh, like uh, uh, Gollum says about potatoes. <laughs> Some of you catching this reference, you know, potatoes, what's potatoes? He's never heard of potatoes. Well, the disciple, when has Jesus ever spoken about church? And the answer is never. Because all of what Jesus has been saying, and, and John the Baptist before him, was about the kingdom of God. And there is that, that parallel theme. It runs through the Acts of the Apostles. The last verse of, of the Acts of the Apostles is a reference to the kingdom, the growth and spread of the kingdom, the rule and reign of God and his purposes. So when Jesus says, I will build my church, 
On, on one level, it's, it, it's sort of strange that the disciples don't then immediately interject and say, what's church? So the word church, ecclesia, ecclesia, and, and it sounds like, well, it's made up of two words, ek, kaleo, uh, called out of. So I'm going to build the called out of thing, the ecclesia. Actually, it would have sounded very similar in the hearing of the disciples to the word synagogue. The same word occurs in synagogue. So the, the idea, the concept here, what does, what does ecclesia mean? Well, hold that thought in your head for a minute and we're going we're gonna to think about that a little more uh, later on. But let's look at what Jesus says in Caesarea Philippi. And he says uh, four things. First of all, that he's going to purchase the church at the cost of his own life. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples how he must go to Jerusalem. And there be handed over to the scribes and Pharisees and, 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 and be crucified and on the third day rise again. So this church that Jesus is building is going to be purchased at the cost of his life. He's going to give his life in order that the church might be built. Second thing that he says here is that he expands the church by the proclamation of the gospel. And again, we'll come back to this later on in the semester. But in verses 19 and 20, Jesus talks about loosing and binding. Whatsoever is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven, and whatsoever is bound on earth is bound in heaven. There's a correspondence here between things that happen on earth and things that happen in heaven and for eternity, loosing and binding, and and what is that? And there's been a bit of a controversy about it in church history, especially in post-Reformation times, but, but he is speaking here to Peter, and he's saying, He's saying, you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What is it, what is it that has the power to release or bind? And, and the answer is the gospel. The ultimate answer is the gospel. If you don't believe the gospel, you cannot enter heaven. It, your response to the gospel here on earth has eternal consequences. It binds you for eternity. It can either bind you or loose you. So Jesus expands the church through the proclamation of the gospel. Third thing that he says is that he builds his church in enemy-occupied territory. I will build my church on the gates of hell. Well, or Hades. Uh, the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against you. He, he builds his church right next to the gates of hell in enemy-occupied territory. So the church can expect opposition, 
persecution. It can expect to be maligned. It can expect difficulty and hardship. And the fourth thing that he says is that Jesus he calls us into an army of fellow cross-bearers. And you remember how the passage ends in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and, and, and follow me, for if, because if you try to save your life, you will lose it, and only as you lose your life will you save it. So this church is an army of individuals brought into a corporate oneness fighting against the opposition of darkness in a life of cross-bearing and self-denial. That's just a cameo portrait. We could spend an hour or two unfolding all of the details of that. But that's, that's Jesus speaking in Caesarea Philippi about building his church. Now, the one thing I want to draw out from that is this. Jesus has a plan. He has a plan. Uh, he has a program. Uh, we're in a action uh, cycle. We are forever in election cycles in, uh, in the United States. And no sooner have we got out of one that we're into another. And uh, for the next two years, we are, we are going to be bombarded with um, what's your plan? You know, if you're going to stand for the President of the United States, what's your plan? What's your, what's your program? What's, what's, your, what's your vision for the future? What's your platform? Well, Jesus has a plan, and it's called church. It's called church, right? So, so here's, here's a little quiz, a little one-liner that you ask yourself. What is Jesus' great plan for the future? If you don't answer that by saying church, you've got the wrong plan. Now, that church is, is going to be nuanced. There are going to be many aspects to what church means. But church is central to Jesus' plan for the future. Now, point two here, the demise of the church in our time. So let's think about this in terms of 2015. And uh, I've got some titles here, books that have been written in, within the last uh, 10 years or so. Uh, because we are facing, um, in, increasingly facing among, among certain types of individuals, a sense in which church has disappointed them, has let them down, that they've grown beyond church, that church, at least as we understand it, doesn't address and meet the needs of our time. Uh, so we've got titles like Life After Church, God's Call to the Disillusioned, uh, written in 2009. Uh, church Nobodies, How Four Acts of Love Will Make Your Church Irresistible, uh, in 2013. Dear Church, Letters from a Disillusioned Generation, uh, 2006. Quitting Church, Why the Faithful Are Leaving, again, 2013. And that's just a sample of, um, you know, probably 50 titles that I, I, if I had the time, I could have, I could have 
pulled together about the sense of, of disillusionment that exists currently about church. Now, let, let me make one thing clear, uh, a conversation with an individual just before this meeting started tonight. So let me make one thing absolutely clear. Uh, there are those who have been let down by the church. There are those who have been hurt by the church. There are those who have been brutalized by the church. Uh, those who suffer uh, um, uh, sexual abuse uh, within the confines of the church, and that's a huge issue. It's an epidemic issue in, in the church today. Uh, there are lots of organizations addressing that very issue in the church uh, today. Uh, that's a very real thing, and I'm not, I'm not, these books aren't addressing that. These books are addressing more of a uh, a generational disillusionment with organized church. And it often, uh, as, uh, uh, let, me, let me follow the outline here, um, two, t- two books here, Kevin DeYoung and Ted Gluck's book, Why, I, Why We Love the Church in Praise of Institutions and Organized Religion. Uh, many of you know uh, Kevin DeYoung, who spoke here last year and is, I think, coming again this summer for our uh, Thornwell lecture, so you'll hear him again um, this uh, summer. And, and this is a great, wonderful, wonderful book uh, by Kevin DeYoung, Why We Love the Church. But on the other side, um, there's a phenomenon. It, it's sort of losing a little bit of steam now in 2015, but it's been around for 10 or 15 years or more, and, and it's called different things by different people, but let's, let's just give it a one label for now, the emergent church. And the emergent church isn't one thing, it's a spectrum, and it's a whole lot of ideas. Um, but as the paragraph uh, 2C1 uh, sort of encapsulates, and I, I took that from Don Carson's uh, analysis of the emergent church, this is... This is a generation of people who, who, sadly, I think, as Don Carson uh, explains in a, in a fairly large book, um, how they have been influenced by late modernity or post-modernity or liquid modernity, however you want to classify it. Uh, but folk who are disillusioned with the very idea of structure and history and truth and confessions and rigidity and things that are black and white and things are much more fluid. Doctrine is fluid, belief is fluid, experience is fluid, relationships are fluid, structure and organization is, is fluid and everything is, everything is being questioned. And that's, I'm, I'm summarizing a, a, a much broader concept here and it's a spectrum, not a, not a point on a line and, and we're giving it a, a big a big label here, emergent church, but, but that, that in part has been the reason for a, a generational disillusionment uh, with the church um, that, that we see. I don't believe the Barna numbers. Right? People, people just pull out statistics and numbers and questions that are asked and, and, and they make great Articles in Christianity Today or the New York Times or whatever, um, but but often the questions are are 
not nuanced enough and the analysis of who it is who's answering the questions often isn't nuanced enough. You know, when somebody says they're a Christian, you want to put your hand up and say, excuse me, I don't think this person is a Christian. I mean, they may say they're a Christian, but they don't represent me in any way. And, and, and so the answers often come from directions that, that, that need a lot more nuancing. And I, I actually don't believe that conservative, evangelical conservative churches are, are being influenced by this trend in the way that uh, the broader church is being influenced by some of these trends. Let's drop down to three. What does church mean? Uh, when you use the word church in a sentence, I've been to church, you think of church, you think pink building, corner of Marion and, uh, and uh, Lady, uh, I should know where I am, uh, corner of Marion and Lady, pink church, pink building, uh, you think of a, a, a building, you think of a steeple. Uh, when, you, when you say things like, I've been to church, what do you mean? Yeah, you've been to a Bible study that meets in a building that's called the church. When you say, well, I've come from church on a Sunday afternoon and police stop you on the way home because you're breaking the law and they flag you down and they say, uh, sir, where, where, where have you been? And you say, I've been to church. I'm coming from church. I think that's the point where you lie. And I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, what do you mean by church? A gathering, a, a, a gathering of people? Right, so, so when we use the term church colloquially in a sentence, we often mean a whole variety of things, from a gathering of people for a Bible study that share together some common values and, and need help and counseling, to a building with organization and structure and elders and deacons and, and Easter and Christmas and candles and... and, and whatever. What does the Bible mean when it talks about church? Because Peter wouldn't recognize a pink church on corner of Marion and Lady if it hit him in the face. It wouldn't mean anything to him. So what, what does Peter hear when he hears ecclesia? Well, let's see if we can't do a little bit of analysis here on a, on a fairly cursory level, let me say. Um, but there's a, there's a connection here between the word church, ecclesia, and a Hebrew word, kahal, to, to call. Um, so, so there's a connection here between, when, when Jesus says church, ecclesia, what they hear are echoes of a word that, that would have lots of association in the Old Testament. Because in many ways, the people of God in the Old Testament were the called out ones. They were called out of Egypt and, and into the promised land. Um, so there's a connection here between the calling of God and the idea of the church. Let's see if we can't um, nuance this a little, a little further. Uh, ecclesia, called out of. Called out of the world. Called out of 
bondage, called out of Egypt, if you like, for an Old Testament idea, an Exodus people, a a people, a a pilgrim people, a a people on the way, a people on the march, a, a, a people called out of a former way of existence with with certain values, a certain lifestyle, certain, certain, uh, a certain uh, epistemology, a certain way of seeing things into something new. So, so called out of, called out of the world, if you like. Not in the sense, not in the quasi-spiritual sense that we're no longer in this world, that we've become non-material beings, but the world in, in the sense that the Bible often uses the world, the world that is in opposition to God. The, the, the world that's hostile to God. And, and a church is an entity, and it's Jesus' plan for the future, of an entity that is no longer governed by the rules and mindset and worldview of this, of this present eon and existence that is hostile and in opposition to God. That's the first idea. So there's a radical discontinuity between the church, ecclesia, and the world. The world is Egypt. The world is idolatry. The world is opposition to God. And the church is called out of that. Let's nuance it a little further. Ecclesia, called out of, called out of the world, called into fellowship with each other. That's a theme that we're going to have to explore, and the New Testament uses several very particular metaphors to describe this, but the idea that, that the church now comprises the people of God called into fellowship, called into a unity, called into a common sense of purpose and mission and identity. That's what we were, but we we are now this. We are the people of God in fellowship with one another. You know, when I was growing up, it was called fellowship. Uh, Now the trendy word is community. It's it's the same word, communion, fellowship. It it all means the same thing. A a sense of belonging, yes. Not Not just the idea that we get warm and fuzzy feelings when we're in close proximity to each other. Not, not that, but, but the sense of obligation that comes with being united to each other. We have something in common. We are the children of God. We are God's family. We are the body of Christ. We are called into this fellowship. Now, for some of us, uh, that, that's deeply meaningful. It, it should be meaningful to all of us, but for some of us, because of past experience, because of experience of disengagement, because of experience of, of 
being unreconciled, the idea of coming into the church family. Some of you will often say at the Lord's Supper, for example, there's that sense, overwhelming sense that this is family. This is we are the people, we belong together, we hurt together, we cry together, we've, we rejoice together, we sing together, we share our deepest fears and longings and hopes and dreams with each other. We're family. Right? So called out of, called into fellowship with each other. But, but let's nuance it a little further. Called out of the world, called into fellowship with each other, called into fellowship, koinonia, union with Christ. The thing that distinguishes ecclesia, the church, from any other entity is that the church is in union, living, vital union with Jesus Christ. So this word church, right, when at Caesarea Philippi, when Peter first hears this, I'm going to build my church. Those are the sort of ideas that, that are bursting forth from Jesus. Everything, that I've been, everything that's been going on in the Old Testament is leading to this. God is, is calling out a people to identify themselves as the people of God. But to identify themselves as the people of God in the presence of the King. Of the Lord in union with Christ, God with us, Emmanuel. Well, again, we, we could spend an hour or two exegeting all of that, uh, but I'm, I'm trying to give a broad uh, brush panoramic view that we're going to look at under the microscope a little more during the course of this semester. So think of this as a kind of uh, you know, one of those, if you've ever gone to a meal somewhere and, and, and you forget about the main course, you just order six or seven of those hors d'oeuvres. Have you ever done that? That's what this is. Uh, let's look at a couple of New Testament examples, uh, trying to understand what church means. And let's look at uh, Ephesians and let's look at First Peter chapter 2. Let's look at Ephesians first of all. And let's, uh, let's pick it up. In chapter 2, you remember the broad structure of Ephesians, first three chapters, doctrine, second three chapters, four, five, and six, the application to the Christian life. So Ephesians is one of those great epistles that sort of falls into two neat halves of doctrine and practice. Now in the doctrine section in chapter 2 and verses 8 to 10, it's, it's, it's kind of the hinge on which the first three chapters sort of swing. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. He's speaking now to the, to the church in Ephesus, in the Lysus Valley, an epistle that was probably shared with other churches in the Lysus Valley. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. We. You in Ephesus and, and me, the Apostle Paul, somewhere else, in prison in Rome, perhaps, and, 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 but together 
We are an entity that is the workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are a workmanship of God created in Christ, in, in union with Christ. What does this word workmanship mean? And it has two um, basic ideas, construction and conjunction. Construction first. Uh, The word uh, poema, the the word here, has associations with the world of artistry. Workmanship in the sense of artistry. We are a work of art. Uh, Like... um, a poem or a painting or a symphony, in that sense. So there's something of that about this word. We, we are a work of art. We are a beautiful thing. You want to see a thing of beauty, of extraordinary beauty and finesse, then look at the church of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. I wonder if that's how you view the church or... Do you view the church somewhere way below that, somewhere much more negatively? You see the problems. You see the difficulties. You see the way in which the church doesn't fulfill what it is supposed to fulfill and so on. And, and, and you're engulfed in the problems. And Paul is saying, get your head above the, the water for a minute. Stick your head up above the clouds, changing the metaphor. <coughs> what is the church? Uh, this, uh, this gathering of uh, a couple of thousand souls here at uh, Corner of Lady and Marion. What is this gathering? Or the church, in a, in a more universal sense, the church, meaning the church militant here on earth, every, everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, and I'm a Presbyterian, so, and their children, um, that, that church, or, or the church including the church triumphant, the church on the other side, the church that's already in the presence of Jesus, but we're still the same church, we're still the same entity, militant and, and triumphant, visible and invisible. We are a work of art, a work of exquisite beauty. And then another idea associated with this word workmanship, conjunction, um, solidarity. It's a singular noun. We, in the plural, are a workmanship, a single entity. What God has done for us individually has welded us together into a single entity, into, into, into something that's one. We are the church. Yes, we are the church on Lady and Marion. So we'd speak of churches because there's a church at Grace in Pontiac, which is our daughter church, but a church now in its own right and established as as an individual church. But there's a sense in which there's one church. There's one and many, and we're going to look at that. But, But... Here, the workmanship is, I think, speaking of not so much the many, but the one. God is doing one thing here. And it's, it's immensely complicated when you look down and examine all of the parts and details. But come back, come back, come back, come back. And what do you see? The, the church. 
a workmanship. Drop down to our second example, second Peter, uh, First Peter chapter 2. Uh, and this is now the conjunction of all the references to stones, uh, taking some texts out of the Old Testament for sure. Peter is saying, as you come to him, a living stone, him being Jesus, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So he's a living stone, he's, re- he's a rejected stone, he's a precious stone, and, and he's a cornerstone. Uh, Look at verse 6. I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And you've got now this idea there are stones and we are individual precious stones in a building in which Jesus is the chief cornerstone of that building. And the cornerstone is the stone that holds the whole building together. Right, he says... He's a rejected stone, a stone of stumbling, a stone of offense, right? There are lots of, uh, lots of d- different ways of addressing this uh, here. Uh, but uh, Peter is saying, uh, um, among other things, he's saying here, um, he's saying here, look at uh, the last page, page four, uh, being built up a spiritual house being built up a spiritual house verse 5 you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house uh, you know all this meant a great deal I think to Peter on a very personal level because Jesus says you are you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church we are stones in a building I don't think of the pink building on corner of Lady and Marion now, but think of the building that is the church, and we are the stones in that building, and the chief cornerstone of that building is Jesus. And, and we, are, we are united with him in this building, this workmanship, this edifice that is the church of Christ. And what is the function of this church in First Peter 2? Well, priests offering sacrifices to God, verse 5, to offer spiritual sacrifices. We don't offer bulls and calves and heifers and turtle doves, right? We don't slaughter animals and and shed their blood. We don't have priests to do that for us and and, and we we don't... we don't have Passover and put blood on the lintels of the doorposts and all of that. We have a great high priest who shed his blood once for all. But we still offer sacrifice. It's not a bloody sacrifice. It's a bloodless sacrifice because Jesus offered the bloody sacrifice. And our sacrifice is the sacrifice of praise. It's the sacrifice of praise. So one of the functions, right, one of the, one of the chief characteristics of the church is to offer praise to God. What's the church here for? What is one of the chief functions of the church of Jesus Christ? That we offer praise. That's why that opening hymn or psalm 
on a Sunday morning is so, so important. And I know at 8.30 we're kind of tired when coffee hasn't kicked in. But it's so important because what we're doing is offering praise. Uh, Look at verse 9. Go back and look at verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. Heralds declaring his praises. We are heralds. We're offering praise, but we're also heralds. We, We speak, we vocalize. The message, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 10, this mercy-driven consciousness that Peter speaks of. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Uh, Shades perhaps of Hosea. uh, Ami and lo Ami and Hosea perhaps. Once we were not a people. You know, once we were... We were... We were cut off. We were, we were in bondage. We were slaves. We were in darkness. But now we've been reconciled into fellowship with each other and into fellowship with God in union with Christ. We are the people. We have an identity. Uh, we're in a, a culture that uh, is riddled with the effects of the loss of identity. Uh, generations of people, young people, who, who lose their identity, folk in bad marriages who lose their identity, have no significance, who are belittled and scorned and hurt and bruised and brutalized. And Peter is saying, you know, when you're a member of the church, you have an identity. You are the people of God. And it's a beautiful thing. You're part of that, of that structure, that edifice, that is a thing of beauty, and you find identity and wholeness and completeness. Three principal metaphors. We don't have time, but we're going we're gonna to explore these in the coming weeks. But the three metaphors, building or temple, a dwelling place for God, Ephesians 2.22, the idea of God dwelling in this building, the idea of temple. Body, that's another metaphor. We are the body of Christ. It's a Pauline um, metaphor. In Ephesians 4.12, the building, building up the body of Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 12, the body of Christ in which Jesus is the head. And we're going to look at that. And because we are the body, we're different parts of the body. And some are arms and legs and toes and fingers and nose and mouth and hands and so on. So there's diversity within the unity of the body. There's also diversity of gifts and opportunity and so on. So building body bride, the bride of Christ. Think of Ephesians 5. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, a bride, that he might present her as a bride A thing of splendor. And then uh, Revelation 19 and 21, that image of the bride will come back again. The bride of Christ. So building body 
bright, three metaphors. And we're going to explore all of those. I think in two weeks we're going to look at the body of Christ in, in some detail and what that means. But this is just a broad brush, um, uh, 36,000 feet uh, view of what is church. I believe in the church. I believe in the church. I believe in the church because it's Jesus' plan for the future. We need to be on board with that plan because if you're not on that train, you're missing Jesus' plan. It's called church. Well, we're going to break for a few minutes. We'll segue uh, in two or three minutes or so to a time of prayer. Uh, do introduce yourselves to the, go- uh, to the Masons. Look, I had friends in the past called Garlands, which confuses me because it was their surname, not their first name. So forgive me, I keep getting confused. But do introduce yourself uh, to, to these friends of ours uh, here tonight. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We are overwhelmed, truly, that our Lord Jesus would bring us into a community, a body, a building, to comprise us as a bride, with he as the head and husband and cornerstone, giving us a sense of identity and fulfillment, that we are a thing of beauty, that he intends for the future and beyond. Lord, we thank you that we're caught up in all of this, and it's all by grace. So teach us, Lord, to love the church for Jesus' sake. Amen.